0: Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. Hey, Joe.
1: Hello. What is it? Week three of the year 2023?
0: Feels like we've already been deep into this year. 2022 is like a very far away memory. But the sun is shining here in Los Angeles. At long last, it feels like, honestly, it felt like it rained on and off for six weeks, which... It's very unusual here. And I'm so happy that um, that this city, that this state is crawling out of what was not only literally dark, but, but also figuratively dark stretch of time, which brings me to our interview here today. Joe, you are talking to someone who is boots on the ground, who's, who's deep in the mess of what's been happening here in California today. Is that right?
1: Yes. We're talking to Yana Garcia. She is the 38-year-old head of the California's EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. And um, she's sort of somebody that's been at the avant-garde of environmental issues in California uh, for the last few years. Before this, she was the deputy secretary of environmental justice, tribal affairs, and border relations, which ties together quite a lot of California issues. Um, And I thought of her to come on the show. I'm excited to have her because, what was it? Three months ago, California's main issue was droughts and power, right? Mm -hmm. Flash forward, it's flooding and mudslides. Um, Previous to this, people thought about fires and, uh, you know, the sun being blotted out of the sky in San Francisco. And, you know, I mean, the extreme nature of weather in California, as you well know, is just a part of life there. Uh, But it's also a, you know, signal of climate change and uh, a harbinger in some people's view of what all of our fates may be one day if we're not uh, managing, you know, energy policy. So I have a lot of questions for her today um, about not just what we've just seen in the last few weeks, but how it fits into the larger puzzle. And is that just how California has always been with the San Andreas Fault and earthquakes and the sense of like, you know, doom in any minute under the sunshine or are what was what we're seeing uh, in the last few years, you know, signals of something much bigger that affects all of us. So that's the the topic I'm hoping to get into today.
0: Well, I fear um, that we already know the answer to that question that you just posed, but I'm happy to hear her uh, explain it in terms far smarter than I think either of us are poised to do. And I'm also happy that you're doing the interview because I have a lot of specific questions about when they're going to fix um, my yeah. my personal road that had a sinkhole in it and is now preventing me from getting to all of the West Side. So um, fitting that we don't spend an entire interview talking about that, and I know you will have very sharp questions for her. Should we just get to the interview?
1: Let's get right into it. Uh, this is going to be uh, Yana Garcia of the uh, California EPA, and here we go.
0: Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair.
1: I am very pleased to welcome Yana Garcia, Secretary for Environmental Protection of the State of California. Welcome, Ms. Garcia.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, Secretary, the last couple of weeks have obviously seen incredible destruction up and down the coast of California in the Central Valley and all across the state. Floods mudslides, enormous economic damage, loss of life. As someone on the front lines of this, can you just bring us up to speed on what's happening and where things stand uh, right now?
2: Well, we are going to be seeing some more rain over the next couple of days. But by and large, we're hoping that we are through the most challenging part of this winter storm. So over the past you know, several days, two weeks, um, we have seen precedent-setting dangerous levels of rainfall, heavy winds that's caused fallen trees. It's caused massive flooding um, that, of course, has received national and international uh, press attention. We've seen loss of livelihoods. We've seen loss of homes. We've seen loss of life. This is a level of damage that we have not seen in many, many decades in terms of uh, what can be caused by winter storms. Um, you know, I think one of the resounding lessons that we're learning year after year in the state of California being on the front lines of the climate crisis is that we're we're starting to live in an age of extremes generally that includes you know ironically enough given the rainfall over the past few weeks extreme drought um, it includes also extreme flooding, extreme heat uh, and wildfires that are all fueled by climate change. And the past few weeks is really, I think, at their core, a reminder that the climate crisis is not going to unfold in some distant future. It is unfolding, unfortunately, for Californians right here and right now.
1: Yeah. Why California?
2: Hmm. Well, first of all, you know, we have weather patterns and ecosystems that are responding to the climate crisis in various ways. Um, And we've had a history of land use patterns that have also in many ways contributed to this. We now have to start managing for droughts at the same time as we're managing for floods because we know that during times in which rainfall is not actively happening, California's landscape is drying out. Uh, And so what we're seeing are these cycles of wildfire, drought, floods now and winter storms that are exacerbating um, an ongoing cycle within our state's ecosystems. They've affected northern and southern California, parts of the Central Valley. The central coast has been hard hit. Uh, the parts that are, of our state that have been hard hit include um, our coastline, communities along our coastline. You know, many of the images from Capitola and Santa Cruz, iconic coastline of the state of California, ravaged really by intense surf by uh, some of the rainfall and heavy winds and, and trees that have fallen, as are our low-lying flatlands um, in places uh, throughout the Central Valley. So places like Stockton and Modesto, places in uh, in our central coast, more inland areas, um, these are some of our breadbasket and fruit basket regions of our state. Uh, places like Salinas and Watsonville in the Monterey Valley have also been heavy hit, and that's not even to mention areas in Southern California like Montecito, um, with also you know iconic views from multi-million dollar homes that are also seeing landslides and impacts to roadways um, and to to people's homes.
1: Uh- you know, you uh, have been involved in environmental justice and know about the impact on people that we don't see, invisible more invisible aspects of uh, our society. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, there's so much homelessness in California. Those people seem to have been, you know, I, I imagine a lot of those people are getting washed out.
2: As we, yes, I think as we plan for both the need to invest in adaptation and our resilience capacity as well as mitigation, we always have to think about the most vulnerable residents among us, right? Like what works for the masses is great, and what works for the majority of the state is great, and we have to build policy toward that but our policy and policy implementation must be geared toward those with the most to lose um, and the most to lose most quickly so yes you mentioned our houseless communities um, folks who need to find immediate shelter um, it's not a matter of you know staying home it's it's where can you find shelter um, have shown us that our investments in resilience capacity at the local and regional level are critical uh, finding, places, warming centers, finding you know shelters to go to is really critical. Also our investment in social infrastructure, social networks, getting the word out uh, about where to find resources and how to get help um, is also really critical and I think these storms have taught us so much about that. Um, and so, to answer your question, I think so much of our policy has to be focused on the implementation side, which is where you know we sit um, and I sit as Secretary for Environmental Protection on ensuring that the most vulnerable communities among us, the most vulnerable California residents, are getting the resources that they need, the information they need, understanding that they have protections, and are able to benefit from some of our investments in resilience capacity and also our investments in driving down emissions. We've long focused uh, much of our work on the policy implementation side uh, in driving down emissions from disproportionately burdened communities. And these are the same communities that are suffering some of the biggest impacts from the extreme weather that we're seeing, as well as from ongoing air pollution and the health impacts associated with that.
1: Yeah. What are you hearing about the impact of this latest flood and in the in the storms on the, the most vulnerable people? Give us some details about things you've heard and, and things we're witnessing as a result of this. Mm.
2: Well, I think, you know, you mentioned the impact on our houseless Californians yeah, and those who lack access to affordable housing options or shelters. And one of the things that we are hearing resoundingly here in Sacramento is that there is a need for, communication channels that get to these residents for help and support for them to get shelter and to salvage their, their valuables, their possessions. Um, they, again, have the most to lose in terms of losing some of these possessions to uh, rising floodwaters, to heavy rains. And so ensuring that they're getting the those basic needs met um, is really important. I think um, in terms of damage to homes and hubs for communities, um, libraries, grocery stores, and, and infrastructure, key infrastructure that has been impacted across our state. Um, we're also going to see a lot of recovery kick in. So one of the things that we do here at Cal EPA is we handle the cleanup of hazardous waste and then non-hazardous waste or debris in the aftermath of wildfires and will will likely be doing so um, in short order in the aftermath of some of these storms.
1: So one of the curious aspects of this is you just guys just got over a drought and now suddenly there's flooding. And I understand that there's an issue of water capture, that the state is ill-equipped to actually retain the water that it needs. So can you explain, you know, the relationship between the two?
2: So it is something we've been paying attention to. Um, In August, the governor, in August of of last year, the governor released a water supply strategy that, um, among other things, does push for our investments in recycled water and recharge capacity. Um, I I do just want to note, you know, as part of the... Possible long term impact of these storms. We're going to see heavier snowpack than um, we've seen in historical memory. Um, We will see over 251% of our average snowpack. That is a lot. Um, We are at 94% of historical reservoir storage. Um, That is also significant. We want to be able to leverage that increased capacity to. Um, recharge our groundwater aquifers to retain water to provide water for crop growth, etc. But we also have too much water in the system, if that makes sense. So yes. we're both trying to leverage the capacity of this water. Consistent with, you know, the governor's direction in the water supply strategy and consistent with what we've long recognized as the need in an arid state like California, um, but also now carefully managing the excessive increase um, in some of our key infrastructure so that we also are able to reduce risk um, associated with too much flow, for example, in in some of these. Um, and and toxic
1: toxins in the water, too, right, from industry and stuff. I mean, isn't this an issue, too?
2: Yes, so when we're thinking about and looking at floodwaters, um one of the primary concerns that we have in terms of risk to Californians wading through those floodwaters coming into direct contact with those floodwaters is that they may carry with them, you know, metals, um chemicals we are concerned with. The profile of contaminants that may be in some of these waters, and are urging Californians to please take careful measures to not come into direct contact. Um, and when that does happen, to be very aware of, you know, the the fact that these waters can contain some dangerous chemicals. Um, but yes, that's that's one of the things that we are concerned about.
1: So before you had this role as secretary of the EPA in California, you were the deputy secretary of environmental justice, tribal affairs and border relations, which encapsulates quite a lot in California. And before that, you were a lawyer for a nonprofit called Earth Justice, uh, which brings lawsuits against different corporations trying to protect people from environmental harm, whether toxins or what have you. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about uh, what environmental justice kind of means generally, and for you in the context of what we're seeing now?
2: I think at its core, environmental justice means that one's race, socioeconomic status, zip code should not determine the level of pollution to which they are exposed. Um, You know, we can trace uh, a lot of environmental injustices, uh, unfortunately, to expropriation of Indigenous people off their land, um, to redlining practices that were all too common for too long that put uh, communities of color at the intersection of of poverty and pollution, um, intentionally so, um, in, in many of our cities um, and regions, not just here in California, but across the nation. Um, so environmental justice is the effort to make sure that We are remedying this long, persistent, historical inequity um, that continues to show itself in so much of how people experience pollution burden and access to some of the benefits of our transition into a renewable energy economy, um, away from a carbon intensive economy, and into a more just and resilient future.
1: Yeah. So can you give me an example of like, what is the front line of that fight today for you?
2: Well, a couple of things come to mind. One is um, there has been some progress made and a lot more work to do in terms of ensuring that all Californians have full access to clean, safe and affordable drinking water. Uh, This is a a challenge that, you know, persists in in urban areas, um, in unincorporated Uh, urban adjacent areas and in rural communities in California. And so we have taken on the challenge of ensuring that Californians have access to clean, safe and affordable drinking water as part of our adoption of the human right to water here in the state. And so I think that's probably one of the primary areas in which environmental justice considerations come up. Um, The other that's coming to mind, maybe most presently right now um, in the context of the storms, is ensuring that, you know, communities of color and low income communities, vulnerable residents are also not subjected to increased risk of exposure to hazardous waste and toxic materials. And we see this happening with, um, you know, industrial facilities that are in operation, with historical cleanup facilities, with brownfields in agricultural communities, with chemical um, uses in, in the agricultural industry. And that's not just the case for us here in California. Again, that's the case, unfortunately, in the nation and, and across the globe. So I think those are two of the issue areas where this comes up um, most often and that come to mind most immediately um, in terms of environmental justice issues.
1: Yeah. So in terms of this latest disaster... How can you quantify the damage that's been done economically? have you have you guys talked about that in the state level?
2: You know, I don't think that we have solid numbers right now on the damage economically. Um, I'm sure that that will be forthcoming. but I will say that in terms of the damages caused by climate change, this is an issue that as I'm sure you're aware, is the subject of congressional hearings. It is an issue that is the subject of a lot of work that not just California is involved in, but our municipal governments, county governments, um, sister states are involved in really holding polluters to account for some of the damage that has been caused by the climate crisis and potentially the knowledge that some may have had about that climate crisis as it was growing. And um, that's an area where I think we'll probably see more activity, but in terms of these particular storms that just took place right now at the end of the month of December and into January, I don't think we have, um, to my knowledge, solid numbers on what the what the damage has been caused.
1: Well, let's go back to what you just said. There are you know uh, specific bad actors that you're you know you're going to to confront in one way or another, or try to bring to justice. For exacerbating climate damage, um, who, who, who are in California? Who, who can we look to?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I think that this governor has made no secret around the need to bring big oil to the table, and mm-hmm. and um, I won't go through the list of who exactly those actors are, but um, I think we can probably think of the the top three that come to mind at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think. There's an opportunity as residents, as members of you know, a collective body politic to hold those who are most responsible to account and ensure that you know not all of the the recovery falls on the backs of hardworking Californians or hardworking Americans or hardworking global citizens. You know, I think that there are a lot of, you know, profits that have been reaped, um, not only by uh, industry over the past several decades, but also in recent price increases that we've seen that were problematic that, again, you know, the governor and and many of our legislative colleagues have made no secret about wanting to address, but um, we want to be able to hold folks to account to make sure that Californians are protected moving forward and that Californians are not suffering the impact of, frankly, greed um, that causes and exacerbates the climate crisis.
1: As a lawyer who has been on the front lines of making legal cases against polluters of different kinds, how do you draw the line connecting, say, carbon-producing energy companies in the extreme weather we're seeing in the news now? How do you go about connecting those dots?
2: Well, I'll answer this this question to the best I can now as a secretary and not as a, a lawyer per se. Um, uh-huh. My answer as a litigator may have been different um, and I'm no longer in that capacity. So I just want to clarify that. Sure. But, you know, I think we are rapidly moving towards, I don't, I, I don't think I, I know we are rapidly moving toward um, decarbonizing our economy. And that is multifaceted and um, is not necessarily a one-size-fits all approach. We are um, certainly cognizant, after all, you know, our, our economy is significant, um, to put it mildly, certainly yeah. cognizant of the need to maintain the thrust of California's economy and economic growth to maintain that, as a focal point of our climate policy, frankly. And I think we've shown that you can have good climate policy and have economic growth at the same time. And so we are conscious of the fact that it's going to take some time, albeit we wanna move aggressively. We wanna set as ambitious targets as we can, as we get there, but it's gonna take some time to get to the full scope of reductions that we wanna see. And in part, that's because we need to bring Everyone along with us, um, including some of the harder to decarbonize industries that we have throughout the state. So is there a line between the ongoing persistence of greenhouse gas emissions and some of the damage? You know, I think we're looking at mitigating and bringing down, reducing our emissions as fast as we can, while we are also investing in our resilience capacity, investing in infrastructure, and investing in local and regional systems that will help Californians stay safe in the new climate reality that we're facing.
1: So, Secretary Garcia, you're 38 years old. You grew up in California. You are a Californian uh, by extraction, by birth. And I wonder... You know, has it always been like this in California from your perspective of somebody who's grown up there? Has it always been this – these kinds of extreme weather events or have they changed over time? What's your personal perspective?
2: You know, I I, I – welcome this question on a personal level because I've been reflecting on it recently. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, specifically in the East Bay in Oakland. And one of the things that I was recently commenting to a friend of mine who also grew up in in the Bay was that I remember there being just heavier fog, something so simple, right? Like even in the summer, there were always really foggy mornings, and I have noticed that they've uh, decreased. Um, they've certainly decreased. We have longer, hotter late summers. As far long as I can remember, we always had a sort of late, later hitting summer. Um, some heat waves, maybe for like a couple days or maybe a week, but not usually that long in September, October. But now it feels like incessant. It's just like. All the time, Um, very warm, dry weather in a place like the San Francisco Bay Area. That was not the reality that I at least personally grew up in.
1: And is there some sort of scientific explanation for the reduced fog? Is it just that California is getting drier? Is it dehydrating?
2: Well, you know, as I think I mentioned at the, at the top of the interview, our, our state climatologist has reinforced the fact that when it's not actively raining in our state, it continues to be extremely dry and our climate and our lands are drying out. And so that's, I guess, on a macro level, that is something that I think many Californians are likely experiencing in their lives, in their day-to-day lives. And if we stop and reflect um, on the weather patterns that maybe some of us who grew up here experienced as in their youth, um, that would probably be a a general observation of course many too many of our communities including many of our tribal communities in the northern parts of the state have experienced directly what it looks like to see a receding waterline, um, and what that means for fish species upon which they might rely for um, subsistence fishing but also for cultural uh livelihood and and um and identity. And so I think that that's something that many Californians are are facing.
1: Yeah. Well, I I was driving through the Central Valley recently, and I noticed all these signs asking Gavin Newsom to uh, open up the, um, you know, they want him to open up the dams and give them more water because, you know, there's generally water uh, flowing towards Los Angeles, California, has become like, it's been a political issue for a long time, obviously. And I imagine uh, that's given the climatological extremes that you guys are experiencing and that's making that the politics of water, uh, become more acute.
2: Yes, I think that's, that's certainly correct. And, you know, this rain has provided much needed water to our state as, as we find ourselves looking forward to, um, ongoing drought cycles. And it has offered us opportunities for, again, groundwater recharge and for, um, Groundwater recharge specifically that helps farmers, and I want to be clear that you know this this administration has invested more than eight billion dollars in modernizing our water infrastructure and the management of our water systems, um, in part to be able to leverage the benefit that we get from heavy rainfall such as this. Um, I think we are facing some, you know, conditions that we did not quite foresee that are um, pretty unprecedented, but those investments are still key to making sure that we're able to leverage the benefit of these rain events, of these um, uh, wet cycles, if you will, and be able to provide water where it's needed across our state.
1: Yeah, because the implication here is that this is the new normal.
2: Yes, this is the new normal. These cyclical droughts increasingly heavy winter storms and unfortunately the need to protect ourselves against wildfires are the new normal for the state of California and look we're we're only going to get through it together we are only going to get through it if we all maintain the north star of drastically reducing our emissions as much as possible to contain the crisis to what it is, and be able to invest in the resilience capacity of our communities and our regions, our diverse regions across the state.
1: Yeah, I man, I have to say, I mean, maybe this has always been true to some degree, but especially now, you have to be a little bit um, fatalistic to be a Californian. You know, you have to, you sort of have to uh, accept uh, a certain amount of disruption,
2: or naively hopeful.
1: <laughs> um
2: uh yeah you know i think disruption is healthy particularly in times of crisis and we are in a moment of crisis and we need to be able to think differently and strategically about how we're going to move forward and step into this next chapter for all of us um yeah. i am probably a hopeful up op- optimist um, but you know I think we have to we have to bear in mind that again we need a, a collective approach to designing the solutions that we all need to see and we in particular need a collective approach to make sure that the solutions we design and implement work for all Californians including those who are suffering the heaviest impacts from the climate crisis
1: yeah. Secretary, I wanna sort of end on a a little bit of a personal note here, which is um, I read in a profile of you uh, that you have uh, some matching tattoos on your arms, uh, that they are medicine wheel tattoos. Yes, that's right. And uh, tell me about what those mean and what they mean to you.
2: Well, what they mean to me uh, are a daily reminder of uh, remaining centered And knowing that our history, our long history as a human species moves in cycles. Um, So understanding that weathering the storms uh, is about seeing a new day on the horizon and a reminder that we are all interconnected.
1: Yeah. And I guess that goes to your collective, you know, effort to try to, uh, we just need to uh, get the Oil companies uh, <laughs> to feel as a part of that wheel as uh, some other. They're more into driving wheels with uh, fossil fuels than they are into <laughs> medicine wheels. Um, but uh, they're welcome you
2: know, to come join us. Yeah, and I okay. think some of them will. They will. They will do it.
1: Sooner yeah. yeah. Or later. Yeah. Yeah. Yana Garcia, thank you so much for coming on Inside the Hive.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, and I hope to talk to you again sometime soon.